it turns out that when you, um, and this is this is surprising even to a lot of, of economists, but when you when you look at the the pre-Fed and, and post-Fed system, uh, it's it's not obvious that the central bank has uh, improved matters. Um, that is, it, it's it's not clear that the central bank has done a better job, say, smoothing out. Um, macroeconomic fluctuation or promoting long-run economic growth, and and certainly they've done a worse job on the price stability front. It's much harder to predict the the purchasing power of the dollar today than it was under under the gold standard. All right. So hi everybody. Welcome to Liberty Curious. I'm Kate Wand. I'm here with William Luther, who is the director of the Sound Money Project at AIER, as well as associate professor at Florida Atlantic University. Nice to see you, Will. How are you doing today? Good to see you too. I'm doing well. Great. So I was thinking today we could get into kind of the the mess that the Fed has been making. <laughs> around inflation. And you've done a research paper on this that I believe was published today. So maybe we can talk a little bit about your research and what's been going on there. Yeah, that sounds good. So has the Fed, first of all, have they reached their targets on inflation? Because I know that they have these regular targets and that's what they try and go by. But it seems that maybe they've not been meeting those targets for the last couple of years? Yeah, I think that's uh, <laughs> more than fair to say. So, um, you know, the Federal Reserve adopted a 2% uh, inflation target in 2012. Um, and it's, it's modified that target a bit over the years. In 2016, it clarified that 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 target was symmetric, meaning that if uh, um, that it wasn't trying to, um, uh, uh, it wasn't treating that as a, a maximum inflation rate. Back then, the concern was that inflation was too low, not too high. Um, we might refer to that as the good old days now. Mm. Um, so they'd clarified that they were uh, thinking about that as a symmetric target, and any deviation from two percent was uh, an error. Um, uh, and not a systematic bias. Um, and then in August of 2020, they they modified their their target to clarify that it was a, an average inflation target. Um, and this was, at the time, I thought an improvement in the Fed's targeting regime. You know, one problem with uh, an inflation target is that if you have a real disturbance like a pandemic, then uh, we should expect prices to rise. Uh, supplies are constrained, and so prices will rise uh, temporarily, and then they'll come back down when those supplies uh, return. Um, and so, if you're if you're um, uh, uh, you know ensuring that inflation is two percent in every period, you really undermine the market's ability to allocate resources because you make it difficult to reflect that that economy wide disturbance. Uh, and so the Fed adopted this this average inflation target in August of 2020, and basically they said, you know, we're going to allow prices to rise a little more rapidly uh, um, in response to supply disturbances, or um, uh, perhaps um, not rise so quickly if there's a surge in technology. But over the long term, inflation is going to average two percent. Um, so you can you can build this into your expectations when you're say entering labor labor contracts or uh, long term uh, purchase agreements or or loans. Uh, you can you can 
come to expect that inflation is going to be 2%. And so you will have a pretty good idea of what the dollar will be worth at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. So that was the plan. Of course, uh, reality has fared uh, far differently over the last year or so. Um, so beginning in March of 2021, uh, the price level uh, exceeded that uh, 2% trajectory projected from, from January 2020, that is just prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we all recognize that the pandemic was this, this big unexpected event. So we might say, let's Let's see, um, you know, what, what, how prices would have uh, evolved over this time if the Fed had hit its 2% average inflation target. So we'll project out from that date. And prior to March 2021, prices were, were below that, that trajectory. Uh, in the time since, they've, they've grown pretty rapidly. Um, again, passing um, that, that 2% trajectory in March of 2021, and then really beginning to accelerate in in September of 2021. Um, so today, right, the, the newest personal consumption expenditures price index uh, uh, data has come out for April. And um, over, uh, you know, since January 2020, prices have grown at a uh, continuously compounding annual average rate of uh, about 4%. Hmm. Um, and so that means that, that prices are about 4.7 percentage points above where they would be if they had uh, just grown at that 2% uh, um, infl average inflation target. And so, you know, they were pretty late to acknowledge that there was a problem going on, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And why? Why do you think that they were late to acknowledge that problem? Well, part of this just has to do with the difficulty of conducting monetary policy. You know, the pandemic was this, this big, unprecedented event. And, um, you know, initially prices were, were below the, the trajectory. Uh, and so it just took some time um, for that data to be collected and, and for them to assess what was really going on. So if you were to go back to, say, July of 2021, that's, that's when they realized that in March, prices were uh, somewhat elevated um, and, um, and, and that uh, um, in April they had uh, uh, surpassed um, where they were in March. Um, and so that data is coming in with a lag and they're realizing that prices are above that 2% that growth path, but they're not, they're not very, you know, you know, very far above that 2% growth path. And of course, we'd had this big pandemic, um, and so it was reasonable at that time to think that prices were merely elevated because of the supply disturbances that we were dealing with. And if you look at, at statements that the FOMC released, it's pretty clear that um, from uh, 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 the summer there of 2021 through um, September, that they are, are attributing this uh, uh, high inflation to to supply disturbances. They describe it as transitory, um, uh, which at the time uh, we thought meant that prices would come back down when those supply constraints eased up. Um, and they just held on to that narrative yeah. um, until until November. Um, and you know certainly uh, by then uh, that was really difficult to square with the facts. Uh, real output was recovering. 
Um, so those supply disturbances were, were clearly easing. Mm -hmm. And yet, rather than coming back down, prices were accelerating. Yeah. And so at that point, they, they had no choice but to abandon that transitory, that transitory uh, narrative. Um, and so uh, that's, that's what they did. So, you know, reasonable people can disagree about when they should have recognized that there was a problem uh, and why they, they waited so long to acknowledge that. Yes. Um, but certainly, certainly by um, November, uh, it was clear that, that that transitory narrative was dead. Now, there could also be, you know, they blamed it on supply disturbances, but of course, there's also all of the money printing that comes into the calculation of inflation. Is that not true? Well, you know, that's right. The, um, you know, the fiscal authority um, uh, cut checks to households, um, propped up uh, um, uh, some businesses that otherwise would have uh, failed due to the pandemic. And, um, you know, perhaps that was the right thing to do. Right? We, we, you know, the, the, the government shut down the economy uh, for, for, for months. Yeah. Um, and those, those businesses didn't really have a choice, right? And so, um, if you're if you're going to force them to to close, then uh, there would seem to be some obligation to provide them some support for the uh, you know given that you've in, inflicted this this pain on them. Um, but the Fed you know accommodated all of that uh, um, fiscal expansion, um, and you know if we were to to look at at you know how well the fed did say through january of 2021 or march 2020-21 then then that looked you know reasonably appropriate the the problem is that when spending really started to take off uh, that's the point where where the fed should have said well we we have you know, potentially done too much here. And so we want to keep an eye on nominal spending. And if it, if it is picking up as, as we suspect it is, then uh, we need to, to, to cut the growth rate of money to bring that nominal spending back down to prevent um, demand-driven inflation. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Fed didn't do that. Instead, it, it held on to this transitory narrative well into the fall and then even when it abandoned that transitory narrative, it, it really didn't begin conducting monetary policy in a way that would bring down nominal spending until May of 2022. Um, so that, that seems like a pretty long delay. Uh, the, the Economist magazine uh, joked earlier in the year um, that the Fed was uh, uh, depending on a, an immaculate disinflation, that is, just really hoping that dis that inflation would come down on its own. Yeah. Um, because certainly the, the Fed, Fed wasn't doing anything to, to bring down inflation. Okay. So this is what brings me to the Fed's original mandate, which is basically what? What is their original mandate? There's two things, right? Yeah. The Fed is, is tasked with providing uh, price stability and, and full employment. Um, now, in, in the long run, the, the only way that the Fed can affect employment is by providing price stability. That is, uh, ensuring that the, the dollar is relatively stable over long periods of time so that individuals can make appropriate decisions about how much to produce and how many labor hours to supply. Um, you know, economists say that in the long run, uh, money is neutral. Uh, and what that means is that 
um, monetary policy uh, isn't going to affect uh, our uh, ability to produce to any to any real degree in the long run uh, beyond just providing uh, um, some monetary stability. Um, and so, so these these objectives um, uh, are at least over long periods of time in in sync. Um, the Fed can can promote full employment by providing uh, uh, monetary stability or, or price stability. Right. So they kind of missed their mandate. Yeah, they they missed their mandate. <laughs> um, they have have failed to to provide price stability, um, and uh, they've done so in part by fooling people into to overproduce. Now that that's a, a sounds a bit strange when when you describe it as it's uh, normally described. That is, uh, unemployment is is uh, or has been uh, uh, too low, or production has been uh, too high. Um, that seems a bit weird to to most people, and and certainly we're not saying you know that the that that um, the the Fed should cause people to lose their jobs or anything like that. Um, but we're just recognizing that, you know, if we were all fully informed, we would make decisions about how much to work. And over the last year or so, we have expected uh, prices to grow at a rate that is uh, less that, that, than they've actually grown. And so we we made our decisions about how much to work and how much to produce over that time um, with with incorrect information about the value of the dollar. Mm -hmm. And so some of those labor hours that we supplied, we, we would have perhaps not supplied if we'd realized that the dollars that we were getting just weren't going to purchase as many goods and services as, as we expected they would. Um, so if, if we had had better information, we would have chosen not to work so many hours, not to produce so much uh, uh, over the last year. Um, our production instead would have been in line with with the the real reduction in our ability to produce that came about as a result of the pandemic. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's tempting to think that producing more or um, working more hours is is always good, uh, but it's not good if you're only doing that because you think the dollars you're going to get for that production and for that labor is going to buy more goods and services than it will actually buy. Uh, and so. Um, so we're overproducing there. You know, I, I kind of picture somebody who's, you know, who's hired an employee in their small business and then that employee doesn't really have anything to do, right? Like you're, as a business owner, you're spending more money on this employee and that's going to affect things when that person is just standing there not actually working. So I kind of see what you're saying there with that. So, so if they kind of, um, if they fail on, on the first point, then the second one will be affected that way. So it's not necessarily a better thing to have more employment if the circumstances uh, don't don't foster that that kind of environment. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I think about my own personal situation. I have a, a family and um, <laughs> on the margin, I would be be happy just to to spend the weekend playing with my kid at the park. Mm -hmm. um, but, but if there is a big opportunity, uh, to, to, um, you know, to, to pick up some additional hours and, and earn a lot of income, you know, that's good for my family as well. 
And so if the offer is sufficiently high, then I will, I will uh, reluctantly sacrifice some of that time with my family in order to engage in that production. Yeah. Um, but if then I, I get those dollars and go to spend them, and they just don't buy very many goods and services, then I'm going to be disappointed. Right. Uh, I will, uh, I, I will uh, regret that I hadn't just spent that weekend playing with my kid. Um, and so, so, you know, uh, this, this happens to very small degrees all the time. Um, and we don't always connect the two because, you know, inflation is this thing that just kind of happens out there that, that most of us, um, don't have a good idea of why it's happening. Yeah. Uh, and so we, it's not always so clear that we should regret the decision to work more. Um, instead, we usually just express our frustration that the prices are higher. Um, but uh, if we had known that the prices were going to be higher, then we, we wouldn't have engaged in that uh, marginal production. Uh, and so um, uh, we don't always uh, channel that disappointment in the right way. Um, but, but certainly uh, some of us have worked too much, yeah. uh, more than we otherwise would have. Uh, over the last year or so, if if we had known uh, uh, what those dollars would actually purchase. Right. So then your income is actually smaller in a sense, because relatively you're not able to purchase as much with it. Yeah, that's right. So we've, you know, we've, we see nominal wages, that is, you know, wages that aren't adjusted for inflation. We've seen those pick up over the last year. And, you know, naturally workers see those higher nominal wages and they, you know, some folks who otherwise wouldn't have worked decide to work. And some folks who would have worked less, they decide to work more um, because, because firms are offering more dollars. Mm -hmm. But if we adjust those wages for inflation, then we see that real wages or inflation adjusted wages uh, have, have actually declined. Um, and so, um, that although nominal wages have picked up over the last year, they they haven't picked up for most workers uh, to the same extent that prices have have risen, uh, and so that's that that misperception there um, between you know nominal prices, uh, uh, nominal wages, and and the prices that we'll ultimately pay is is what's fooling people into working too much and and producing too much. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, that's basically based on the projections that the Fed had, which were wrong, but then they didn't change their plan, actually. They didn't say, oh, let's let's redirect, let's change course until, when was it? In March, you said, or April 2022? So, um, just, you know, just the, the overview here, in, in December of 2021, the Fed, um, you know, it had finally given up on this transitory language. It made projections of inflation for the next year. And uh, almost as soon as they made those projections, those projections turned out to be very optimistic. Uh, in January, in February, in March, prices were just rising far too rapidly uh, to be consistent with the Fed's projection. And uh, the, Fed, the Fed clearly recognized that prices were rising uh, more rapidly than it had expected because in March, it revised its projections for, for the year. Um, and so, so the Fed was aware in December um, that, that inflation was a problem. Uh, 
and it had had set this this course of policy where it would raise the federal funds rate target by 25 basis points in March. Um, but then as as time unfolded, first, that's, you know, it, it, it could have made this uh, decision to raise uh, its target rate in in January. It could have scheduled an emergency meeting for February. Um, so already we have kind of a long delay here on the Fed's plan. Um, but even if we take that that initial plan as given, um, the Fed was getting new information over this period of time, information that was showing the Fed that that actually the inflation problem is even worse than it expected. And the Fed did not revise its plan. Uh, it just uh, made that 25 basis point move in, in March, revised up its projections for inflation for the year, and, and also didn't really uh, um, take serious action uh, until May. And so, you know, we have this problem that the Fed identified in December that it found out was worse than it had expected in January, February, and March. And yet it doesn't really take serious action to deal with this uh, until, until May. Um, so it's very late to, to begin dealing with the inflation problem. And even then, its moves have had a, a pretty small effect on um, uh, uh, expected inflation over the five and ten year horizons. So it seems it, it seems like you know market participants do not expect that the Fed has done enough uh, yet to bring down inflation. Yeah. Um, and they're also you know not not super confident that the Fed is going to do enough to bring down inflation any anytime soon. Yeah, that's something to really uh, a point that that should really be noted is that it seems like they're not going to do enough to to counter it, and so again, they're they're failing on their official mandate. And so, what I would like to know is, are there any kind of incentives that the Fed would have for allowing inflation to continue on this way? Well, uh, you know, it's worth noting that the the Fed is is failing. Um, <laughs> Uh, in, in, you know, based on you know, two different standards. So if you think about that average inflation target, um, what that, if the Fed were serious about that, then it would, it would mean that um, what, it, what it would need to do is to uh, bring inflation down sufficiently so that inflation averaged 2% uh, over this, this period, that is including the period where inflation has been above 2%. So we would we would need a period of time where inflation is less than two percent in order to bring prices back down to where they would have been if they'd averaged two percent over this this period. Yeah, um, the Fed has uh, basically abandoned that view. Um, it's just going to let bygones be bygones here, and and now it's just trying to bring inflation back down to two percent. So so hmm. it's. It's failed right. in terms of that um, that uh, a, you know, strict task of averaging inflation over the the period um, where where inflation has been too high. So would that previously. so would that be sorry to interrupt, but would that be kind of like a compounding inflation then versus the average inflation? Well, it means that it means that the the effect on the price level that we've seen over the you know the the last fourteen months. Um, is going to be permanent hmm. uh, or largely permanent. Um, that is, if if the Fed succeeds at its 
its revised task, just bringing inflation back down to 2%, then we're going to, um, we're going to be on a higher price level trajectory. So prices will remain elevated, but then they will grow at 2% in the future. The bad news is, <laughs> is that uh, the Fed appears to be failing to accomplish even this revised task. Um, that is, if you look at market expectations of inflation, um, they're uh, above 2% for the five-year horizon and the 10-year horizon. Um, so, so markets uh, are, are expecting uh, you know, not only that the Fed is not going to bring, bring prices back down to where they otherwise would have been had we not had this high inflation period, uh, but they're not even going to bring inflation down to average 2% going forward over the five or 10 year horizon. Wow. Um, and so, you know, right now, um, markets are expecting inflation to average around 2.7% over the next five years and uh, uh, around 2.2% uh, over the next 10 years. Uh, most of that uh, above average inflation will be in the near term, you know, over the next year or two. Um, but, uh, um, you know, we're, we're going to continue to see high rates of inflation for the next year or two, and then inflation will, will return to 2%. Um, but, uh, um, it's not going to happen very quickly. Right. And, and do those projections that you just mentioned, do those numbers come from the fed or from other sources? Uh, so the numbers that I just mentioned are coming from uh, bond markets. Okay. So, my student Morgan Timmon and I uh, look at the the spread between traditional treasuries and inflation protected uh, or inflation indexed treasuries, and so that gives you a, a, a decent estimate of how much bond traders are pricing in uh, in terms of inflation over the five and ten year horizon. Um, the Fed uh, issues uh, projections for inflation over um, when it when it uh, meets uh, each quarter. Um, and so its most recent projections are from uh, March. Uh, and I believe it was projecting, if I recall correctly, around 4.3% inflation for the year. Um, at this point, I would be surprised if inflation is um, below 6% for the year. Uh, so um, it, it looks likely that when the Fed meets again in June, it's going to revise its projections uh, up further because the price level has just grown much more rapidly than, than its projection uh, uh, would have suggested. You know, I, I read a really great article from AIER the other day. Somebody had written about the wokeification of the Fed and how it seems that, you know, they're steering their ship towards some other political values. And could that be something that's getting in the way of them dealing with this inflation problem? Well... Certainly what we want, um, you know, given that we, we have a central bank that is tasked with managing the, the dollar, what, what we would like is for that institution to be narrowly focused on doing that job well, because it's an important job. Um, and, uh, you know, some uh, have, have suggested that because that's a somewhat boring job or, or has been a somewhat boring job over um, the last decade or so, um, that, that Fed officials got distracted. Uh, we see this also with, hmm. with other central banks like the ECB, 
Um, they've they've been looking much more at issues of of climate change and, and inequality. And um, you know, if you if you uh, want to pursue those ends, there are avenues for, for doing so in the U.S. Uh, that that should be taken up by by Congress. Um, but uh, the Fed has has dipped its toes in the water here mm-hmm. uh, in terms of. Um, you know, thinking about how its regulatory efforts might, um, uh, you know, be able to to uh, limit climate change or um, the extent to which it can conduct monetary policy to reduce inequality, uh, and and the problem is just that um, that's that's not part of the Fed's job. Uh, it's not it's not obvious how the Fed would conduct monetary policy appropriately to reduce inequality. Those, that's really driven by structural issues um, that the Fed just doesn't have um, good tools to deal with. Um, and, and the risk, which, which I think um, you know, many people are, uh, are, are coming to realize, is that when the Fed devotes its attention to these other things, it's taking that attention away, at least on the margin, from its core mission of yes. pro- providing Price stability. Yes, um, and so uh, perhaps as a consequence, um, it's it's let uh, um, you know prices grow rapidly uh, over the last year, uh, and and you know we're dealing with the consequences of that. And the and the Fed is supposed to be partisan, correct? They're not supposed to be political. Uh, so the the Fed is is uh, um, supposed to be independent. Um, it's the the board. Uh, the board members are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Uh, other members of the Federal Open Market Committee, the regional reserve bank presidents, uh, they're appointed by by their bank boards and um, uh, confirmed by the board of governors. Um, but the idea is that you know monetary policy is too important to be corrupted by the political process. We don't want to cut. We don't want an administration to conduct monetary policy um, to to improve its election odds. Instead, we want an independent central bank, which will take a very long run view of of what monetary policy is best for the U.S. economy, and then conduct policy that way. Um, so that's really the argument for for central bank independence. Um, now the Fed is. You know, strictly speaking, not independent. Uh, it, its uh, uh, officers, or many of its officers, are appointed by the president. Um, and you know, as we've seen uh, uh, quite clearly under the previous regime, um, the the president can can put pressure on the Fed to conduct monetary policy. Uh, so, so you know, we shouldn't be uh, deceived into thinking that it it actually is independent. Um, but there are reasons to think that uh, independence uh, would would be good, or, or, or is uh, uh, something that is is at least better than than the alternative, which is a, a politically compromised, uh, politically influenced uh, Fed that that delivers poor monetary policy. Yeah. Um, so so that's the the idea there. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me, and it kind of lines up with a thought that I've had, which is that. It sounds kind of like the Build Back Better program might require the Fed to print money, to lend money at low interest rates all over, and to do things that are different than focusing on the task that is the best for the people, which would be to deal with those inflation rates. 
Well, you know, the, the government is a big borrower. And so they're um, uh, certainly, you know, the, the, the Treasury would prefer, you know, uh, politicians would prefer as well uh, for the, the interest on that debt to um, remain low. Um, it also has, uh, uh, you know, it, it, the, the government will stand to gain if inflation erodes the real value of that, uh, of that debt. So there may be a reluctance to, to raise interest rates, um, and, and there may be some, uh, uh, some political desires to see uh, at least a temporarily higher rate of inflation to erode some of that uh, uh, real debt. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think it's reasonable to expect that that pressure is there. Um, but the Fed, you know, it hasn't, um, you know, it hasn't uh, obviously succumbed to those pressures, at least to any meaningful degree uh, in, in the, you know, the not so distant past. You know, we had this, this period from uh, the, the mid 1980s uh, to, to today that uh, sometimes referred to as the great moderation. Mm-hmm. Inflation was was relatively low, um, with the exception of the the Great Recession. Real GDP growth was was uh, you know reasonably strong. Um, people might quibble about whether that real GDP growth was sufficiently strong following the recession, but but by and large, monetary policy has been conducted reasonably well during that period. Again, excluding the the Great Recession there, mm-hmm. um, and and not obviously buckling to political pressure. Indeed, um, one of the big problems during the Great Recession is that um, that that uh, inflation was too low. Individuals um, were being fooled into underproducing, the opposite problem that, that we have uh, today. Uh, and so it, there seems to be some way that it resisted those political pressures uh, in the not so distant past. And so it's it's possible that that political pressure has creeped back in now, um, but it's it's not obvious what the, you know why that is. Yeah. Um, well, I think that anybody can think about those things and come up with a few answers for themselves. Um, but but one of the things that that also has been on my radar is the CBDC. And I just saw yesterday, Brainard, who's the vice president of the Fed, she was having a Q&A with a bunch of senators talking about uh, the central bank digital currency and a possibility of doing that for the U.S. And so, you know, if I look at it kind of from a broad angle, I would think, well, maybe if the U.S. dollar continues to be debased this way and lose some of its value, they have a better argument for a CBDC. Well, um, you know, the arguments that that Fed officials have have put out for a CBDC are a bit strange, to be honest. Um, you know, one one problem with the central bank offering a, a retail money like a CBDC is that it will it will take funds uh, out of the private banking system. So you or I, you know, today we have checking account balances. But if we had access to a central bank digital currency, which would allow us to make, um, you know, similar transactions uh, to the transactions we make with our checking accounts today, we, we might instead opt for that CBDC. And so uh, banks would lose a major funding source. Um, those those uh, checking account balances uh, would 
would be diverted to the Fed. Mm -hmm. And and that would would imply that then the Fed has to uh, allocate more credit than it is today. Um, That's a concern. It's a concern because we don't really have any reason to think that that the Fed can allocate credit more effectively than the private banking system. And so this could be a headwind for economic growth. Now, when when pushed uh, um, uh, about this, uh, Fed officials will say that you know they're they're not going to 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 um, to try and attract these customers from from private banks. Um, they'll say that they're they're going to pay an interest rate uh, on these accounts that's less than the uh, um, rate that they pay on reserves, and so um, banks will will still be able to induce people to. Um, to keep checking account balances, but when you when you reflect on what that means, uh, it it's kind of strange. Essentially, the the Fed is saying that you know these central bank digital currencies are going to be so great, uh, but nobody is going to use them. <laughs> um, <laughs> Don't which worry. Is odd, Don't right? worry. You won't need to um, use them. Yeah, that you is can't odd. have it both ways, right? right? Like either <laughs> this is a great revolutionary technology, in which case a lot of people will want to use it but also it will suck uh, funds out of the private banking system or it's not uh, um, a great technology and we don't have to worry too much about it sucking funds out of the private banking system. Right. But you can't simultaneously maintain that this is a great technology and we don't have to worry that people will use yeah, it. Don't worry. You um, don't, you won't a, want it though. You won't want it. You won't, you won't have to use it. Yeah. That is a, a very weird sales pitch. It, it reminds me of that old Woody Allen line, right? Uh, nobody goes to that restaurant anymore. It's too crowded. <laughs> there <laughs> so, you go. There um, you go. Very similar here with the, the CBDC uh, uh, approach that the Fed seems to be taking. Yeah. So so there's there's a lot to delve in there with the CBDC, and I would love to have a discussion with you just on that specifically as well. <laughs> um, but I'd like to, to bring that into another topic, which is sound money, because you're the director mm. of the Sound Money Project at the American Institute for Economic Research. And so sound money sounds like the right thing, a kind of solution maybe <laughs> for people to, to, to deal with inflation on a personal level and on a policy level. Would you like to speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, um, what we would like to have in a monetary system is a, a monetary system that has a, a predictable, a money that has a predictable purchasing power uh, over the long run. So it's well anchored. Um, uh, but also that uh, tends to mitigate macroeconomic fluctuation. So the supply of that money expands and contracts to meet changes in demand. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that is the ideal. Um, of course, we, you know, we live in the real world. And so most of the, the alternatives that we have access to uh, fall short of, of that ideal. Um, but recognizing the ideal uh, gives us a way to evaluate those various alternatives. Um, so, you know, at the Sound Money Project, we, we write a lot about uh, the central bank and, and the monetary policy that it conducts, of course. Um, and, you know, the, the central bank has the ability to uh, anchor the uh, long-run purchasing power of the dollar and to... Um, uh, accommodate changes in, in money demand. Um, but it uh, hasn't been doing that. Um, you know, it's not 
providing a, a, a great anchor of, of um, uh, purchasing power over the long run. Um, and um, as we saw in the Great Recession, it's also not uh, um, mitigating macroeconomic fluctuation. And, and we're seeing that uh, today in the, in the opposite direction. It's encouraging some overproduction. Yeah. We can look at some historical alternatives as well. So some of us on the Sound Money Project um, have written a fair amount about uh, the classical gold standard. Yes, you have a book uh, on that, this, correct? Yeah, that's right. We, we have a, um, a book that came out last year um, uh, on the gold standard. It's called The Gold Standard Retrospect and Prospect. Hmm. And you know that system anchored the long-run purchasing power of the dollar reasonably well. Um, but over short periods of time, uh, it uh, would respond to changes in demand. But of course, on a gold standard, you have to to, to dig up that gold and bring it to the mint. Uh, and so the the supply adjustments were were relatively slow. Uh, it it turns out that when you um, and this is this is surprising even to a lot of, of economists, but when you when you look at the the pre-Fed and, and post-Fed system, uh, it's, it's not obvious that the central bank has uh, improved matters. Um, that is, it, it's, it's not clear that the central bank has done a better job, say, smoothing out um, macroeconomic fluctuation or promoting long-run economic growth. And, and certainly, they've done a worse job on the price stability front. It's much harder to predict the, the purchasing power of the dollar today than it was under under the gold standard, uh, and so you know we're selecting between um, two Im imperfect uh, uh, um, options there, um, and and perhaps we would we would prefer one or both of those to to work better, um, but uh, but that's that's the situation we're in. Right. Well, well, the central bank was founded in 1913, right? So that was right on the tip of World War One. And um, that was, I think there was an ideological reason for that as well. There's the, the central planning model and we can control the economy and we can run things best. A couple of people, like, I mean, the Federal Reserve is made up of seven people, you know, to run the economy for millions of people, um, you know. And then there's the gold standard, which was more decentralized, private banks. And then, of course, there's Bitcoin, what do you what do you, do you have any anything to say about Bitcoin? <laughs> yeah, so if we think about those uh, those two features of a sound money, we can apply that to to alternatives like like Bitcoin as well. Um, you know, one advantage of Bitcoin is that um, its supply follows this pre-programmed. Uh, um, uh, mechanism. And so we always know uh, how much Bitcoin is going to be in circulation at, at any point in the future with a very high degree of, of confidence. Um, that, that has some, some positive attri attributes, um, but it also has some negative attributes, which is that um, it doesn't accommodate changes in the demand for, for Bitcoin uh, at all. Um, and so, you know, the, the fluctuation in demand under the, the gold standard was accommodated very slowly, um, but s slowly is, is uh, uh, you know, better than not at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, we see big swings in, in the purchasing power of, of Bitcoin over short periods of time. Right. Now, there's, there's a hope 
that uh, if there were sufficient adoption of, of Bitcoin, that that some of this fluctuation would go away yes. um, because there would be much less um, you know, speculation on the extent to which this is uh, going to be used in the future. And instead, we would have much more confidence in the uh, extent to which it's going to be used in the future. So uh, some of that purchasing power volatility that we observe would, would decline. Um, but we're still going to get you know, routine fluctuation in demand um, and, um, you know, much like we see with the dollar today or the, the gold-backed dollar of the past. Uh, and, and Bitcoin doesn't have a, a me- mechanism at present for, for dealing with that volatility. Right. Uh, and so it's, um, you know, one way of dealing with that volatility would uh, be to, to have a, a banking system uh, as, a, as a second layer uh, on, on the uh, the. Bitcoin um, primary layer, um, and so you would use Bitcoin for settlement between between banks, and then uh, banks could issue claims to Bitcoin, uh, uh, which could um, accommodate changes in in demand to hold Bitcoin uh, to the extent that those claims are are close substitutes for the for the underlying base money. Um, so these are are certainly some of the things that we're we're thinking about at the Sound Money Project and and writing about as well. Um, you know, not just the the system we have today, um, but systems we've had in the past and systems we might have in the future. Yes, that that might have the potential to to provide a more sound money. Well, that's great. I mean, um, I I'm personally a somebody who thinks that Bitcoin has a lot of potential as well. I think the gold standard is a great thing. Um, to learn from. And um, I think that what's happening, what we're seeing too right now is some tension between uh, moving towards that kind of sound money and that natural tendency to move into sound money after a period of, of you know, relative stability, but a lot of control. Mm-hmm. You know, this kind of innovation saying, well, let's let's find a better model and having that on one end and then having at the other end um, and governments and central banks saying, whoa, whoa, wait a second, we need to create a competitor with this. But, but don't worry, you, you won't have to use it. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think that, um, you know, that, that central banks around the world, um, they recognize that, you know, after the launch of Bitcoin, that, um, that there will be private alternatives that might take some of their market share um, but also um, that that of other government monies uh, might take some of their market share, and so there's this push to to be innovative um, and and to protect uh, your your market share, um, even if it comes at the expense of the people who are using uh, your your money. Um, and so I I I think that's um, largely what we're seeing today with with all of these central banks being interested in um, central bank digital currencies. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, So just, you know, coming back, bringing it all together here, um, do you think that there are any things that people can do personally to to insulate themselves against the inflation that we're going to see uh, in the long term? Well, you know, one thing that I encourage uh, folks to do is is try to renegotiate their their labor agreements 
Um, you know, the, the reality is, is that if your, if your wage or your salary has not adjusted at a, uh, an annual, uh, rate of, you know, roughly 4%, uh, um, per year over the course of the pandemic, then you've taken a real pay cut, um, uh, that is your, your wages today by fewer goods and services than they would have previously. Um, so, you know, you should take that information to your employer and try to renegotiate your, your, your wage. Um, that's, that's not easy for, for some folks to do. So maybe you have to uh, look for employment elsewhere. Um, but, uh, but that's one thing that, that folks can try to do to, um, at least uh, undo some of the damage that has been done uh, by the inflation we've already experienced. Um, the, you know, uh, uh, the other thing is just to think about your, your portfolio. Um, you know, we're going to experience inflation, uh, you know, above average rates of inflation, um, you know, probably for the next year or so. And so you want to, uh, economize on your non-interest bearing assets to the extent that you're able to, um, that is, you don't hold much cash. Um, if you can, if you can reduce your cash holdings, either by, you know, buying real assets or, um, or purchasing financial assets that will, will adjust with in inflation over time, um, then, then, you know, that's probably a good idea right now, because if you're just holding cash, you're locking yourself into, um, that declining purchasing power. And so you want to economize on your, on your, uh, um, uh, cash holdings and other uh, non-interest bearing uh, um, assets. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I'll just put in the caveat that this is not uh, advice that uh, you're getting from. <laughs> it's not official advice, but just yeah, thinking it's not about financial things. advice. There you go. Not financial <laughs> advice. There's the caveat. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what assets you should buy, <laughs> um, but but it seems pretty reasonable to expect that cash is going to depreciate. Yeah, over that you know the Fed is is projecting that inflation will be above two yeah. percent um, through 2024. So so prepare uh, accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense to me, Will. Uh, thank you so much for being here. This was a great chat. And um, if, you, if you have any last words that you'd like to say to, uh, to our viewers, uh, you're welcome to go ahead. Well, you know, just um, I would encourage viewers to, to check out the Sound Money Project at the American Institute for Economic Research. We uh, write pretty regularly for a, a, a broad audience. So uh, even if you don't have a background in, in monetary economics or macroeconomics, we try to uh, to aim our, our pieces towards a, a broad audience. So, um, you know, follow along and, and um, we'll try to keep you apprised of what's going on on the inflation front. Yeah, that's great. If you're liberty curious, go to AIER.org. Thank you so much, William Luther, for joining me today. Thank you.